0: My name is Davis Smith. I'm the CEO of Cotopaxi and an MBA graduate of the Wharton School. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of MBA students and alumni who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with the hope of bringing together a community of business people striving to bless the world. In this podcast, you'll hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you both in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit LatterDaySaintMBA.com. And now, I'll pass it over to Kurt Francom, who will host this week's interview.
1: All right, welcome back to another episode of the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. My name is Kurt Francom, your host, and today I have the opportunity to connect with Bridget Madrian. How are you, Bridget?
2: Good. Glad to be here.
1: Yeah. Now, uh, when people ask you, you know, what is it you do for work? Uh, what, what do you tell them?
2: I proudly tell them that I am the dean of the Brigham Young University Marriott School of Business.
1: Nice. That's a pretty cool title. I mean, did you ever expect that this was where your professional life would lead?
2: Absolutely not. (laughs) If you would ask me 30 years, the likelihood that I would be in this position, I would have placed it at probably close to zero.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, doing this, producing this podcast and, you know, you know, building a list of names and uh, prospective guests and whatnot, we, you know, we definitely want to work more women to into uh, the lineup uh, because the, you know, the business career seems like, you know, there's just more men, right? That for whatever reason, especially in the context of our religious culture. And so I'm curious with your journey to where you're, you're at now, did you, when, when was the beginning where you thought I'm, I'm going to look at business and whether it's academia or, or but, but that subject that that was where your career was, was going to lead? Was there a moment?
2: So there was a moment, I don't know if it's the type of moment you were looking for, there was a moment <laughs> when I was sitting in my eighth grade math class. Oh, wow. And I can remember that moment very clearly. And I decided I am going to get a PhD and become a professor like my dad. So my father oh, cool. was a sociology professor here at BYU at that time in my life. And I mean, looking back, I, I really did not have a, a clear idea of what it meant to get a PhD and become a professor. But I had spent time on campus with my dad. He'd bring me up to his office to help him out. And I thought it looked like he had a pretty good job. And I loved school. And so I figured that would be something I enjoyed doing. And uh, the great thing about deciding that when you're in eighth grade is it gives you a clarity of focus. So when I started BYU a few years later as a freshman, uh, I took the introductory economics class, not because I thought I was going to major in economics. I thought I was going to major in political science, but they recommended taking economics. And I took economics and I loved it. And so, you know, fall semester of my freshman year, I then decided I'm going to major in economics and then I'm going to go get a PhD in economics. And I knew exactly what I was going to do. And I started taking all the economics classes that I I could, and so really quickly I was taking graduate level coursework. I think as a sophomore, wow. uh, at B, certainly as a junior at BYU. So I was really really well prepared for for graduate school. So I didn't have a lot of the, I, I can't relate to my kids when they're <laughs> experiencing anxiety about what to do in their lives. I'm like, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so you I just... grad- graduated from BYU, went to MIT and got a PhD in economics. At the time, MIT was the top graduate program in economics in the, in the world. Cool. So I feel really lucky and fortunate that I was able to do that. And then if you get a PhD, there's this, Thing at the end, uh, when you're about ready to graduate called the job market. And (laughs) you throw your resume, your CV out there, and you see who who wants to interview you and maybe give you an academic job. And there were a couple of business schools in the mix. And I was just really confused. Why would I want to go to a business school? Uh, And so I interviewed with with two of them two business schools and one of them asked me, why are you interested in coming to a business school? And I just looked right at him and I said, I'm not.
1: <laughs> <laughs> at least you're honest. That's great.
2: <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't make me an offer. Uh, but, Imagine but, that. but the other one did. University of Chicago Graduate School of Business made me an offer, which I did not take. I, I ended up accept, accepting an offer at the Harvard Economics Department because I really couldn't see myself in a business school. And went to Harvard for for two years in the economics department, and it wasn't a great time to be starting out at Harvard in in the areas in which I was interested in. Uh, I was at the time doing some research on healthcare and labor markets, and Bill Clinton had just been elected president, and three quarters of the faculty that were working in areas adjacent to mine decamped and went to Washington for two years to be uh, part of the Clinton administration. So it was, a, it was, a, uh, you know, if they were there, I think it would have been more exciting. But when I was there, it was a little bit of a lonely place for, for me. And one of my best friends from graduate school started at Harvard with me and a year later she went to Chicago and she called me up and she said oh this is awesome here this is a great job you should come to Chicago I'm sure they'd make you another offer and and they did Hmm. and I went and visited for a week and had a great time with the faculty and that's how I ended up being at a business school I, I I had to be Convinced to do it against my better judgment. Yeah. But those, I spent eight years on the faculty at the University of Chicago Graduate School of Business, and that was really a pivotal time in my career because I uh, ended up shifting my research focus based on the fact that I was at a business school. I decided if I'm at business school, I should be doing work with companies, and started doing some work with a, a big. Uh, benefits and compensation consulting firm located in Chicago completely changed my research trajectory. And, uh, you know, and 20 plus years later, I'm still working off of that change in focus that happened when I was at Chicago. And then I spent three years at the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. And then I went to the Harvard Kennedy School of Government which is not a business school, but um, shortly after I got there, they started a joint degree program with the Harvard Business School. And I spent several years teaching students who were getting both uh, uh, an MBA at Harvard and a master's in public policy. Hmm. Uh, And that was a, a great opportunity. So I've taught MBA students, I guess, if you include BYU now at four different universities Uh, despite the fact that I was dead set against doing it at one point.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, and maybe I'm not as familiar with some of these processes, but so graduating with a PhD in economics, did you assume you would be teaching some type of political science? Is that typically where you'd go with that, that background?
2: Well, typically you'd go get an academic job in an economics department and you'd you'd teach economics. Uh, So I specialized in uh, public economics. So uh, government sector tax policy, gotcha. things like that. And in labor economics, so labor nice. markets, unemployment, things like that, employee benefits.
1: Yeah. So take me back as far as when you completed your undergrad at BYU and then, uh, headed towards MIT. Was that, uh, was that a tough decision? Did you have a few colleges you were looking at uh, as far as graduate school?
2: So for I, I did have some choices for me. It was not a tough decision. So as I mentioned earlier, it really was the top PhD program in the country at that particular point mm-hmm. in time. And the really great thing about MIT uh, or, or about economics at MIT is undergraduates don't typically go to MIT to major in economics. They go to MIT to major in computer science or engineering, yeah. something more traditional science that you would expect yeah, yeah. at an institute of technology. So their economics department or their economics program for undergraduates is much smaller than at other similar institutions, which meant that the faculty really devoted a lot of time and energy to the graduate students because they didn't have as many undergraduates that they, that they needed to worry about. So we got lots of attention and it was uh, you know, a challenging environment. They had high expectations, but but I found it to be a very nurturing place, and that's not true of a lot of PhD programs. The other interesting aspect of my experience at MIT was uh, economics is a discipline that uh, is has low representation of, of women. I mean, even mm. today, maybe thirty percent of the PhDs are are going to women. And when I was doing it, it was lower than that. And by some fluke of nature, the year that I started there in the program that had about thirty-six students, 16 of us were women. Wow. And the and the typical, like the year before, the year after, it was it was two or three. I don't think they've ever had a program with that many, or a cohort with that many women in it. And uh, it was a great experience to have, uh, and it wasn't it wasn't the experience I'd had at BYU in the economics department. Yeah, I I had bet, lots yeah. of classes here was where I was the only the only female in the class. So I had this amazing experience in graduate school with with not only amazing faculty, but this huge cohort of of women who have now gone on to become professional economists. And some of them I, I keep in contact with and count them as good friends.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, and, and you know, I, you've sent me a handful of principles that maybe we'll touch on. And, and if this uh, spills over to any of those, feel free to, to go with it. But, you know, going back in time to when you were in, when you were an undergrad or even in graduate school, like on that journey, I mean, that can be, obviously a difficult journey, especially at a competitive institution like MIT. What, I mean, what advice would you give to yourself or encouragement would you give to yourself in that, in those, in those years, as you were getting through school?
2: Oh, good question. I, I guess I would say you can do hard things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and you know, I, I expected graduate school to be hard, and it was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Mm. I, I was I was well prepared. BYU gave me excellent preparation, and I completely underestimated how hard it was going to be. And uh, you know, there were there were moments in time where I thought, I wonder if I really made the right right choice. There was actually a moment in time I wondered whether I should have. Uh, gotten an MBA instead. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, it got better. It 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 got better. The first, the fr- and I think that's true with a lot of things in life. When you're doing something new, initially it might be really hard and challenging, but it, it gets it gets better. It gets easier. You you find your you find your sea legs, uh, yeah. and you figure out how to how to make it through. So I, I yeah. think one of the things I learned was just to persevere and not give up.
1: Yeah, because I, I would imagine it in the the day to day of it, it sort of s- feels so overwhelming that, you know, you'll never survive, but you just keep plugging along and, and it gets yeah. better. right?
2: I think I think another thing I I, I certainly didn't appreciate this uh, er, early on is you you get into a program like that and you think that everyone is smarter than you are. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> what you what you come to realize although it may take some time is that everyone is overwhelmed in the same way and you're all sitting in class and everyone's afraid to raise their hand and ask a question and admit that they do not understand what the professor just said, and you're sitting there thinking that you are the only person that that doesn't understand. And it turns out you're surrounded by you know 30 other people, none of whom understand, but you're all too chicken <laughs> to to admit that you're the that that you're the one person in the room who doesn't understand because you think you're all alone. Uh, so when when prospective graduate students come and ask me for advice, one of the things I always tell them is. You're qualified, you're smart enough to do this and don't be fooled into thinking that everyone else knows more than you do.
1: Yeah yeah that's great. And then you know after you're uh, graduated with your PhD and you begin to you know teach at these different institutions um, were they did each institution sort of have their own uh, characteristics, their own personality uh, or was it sort of one business school to the next?
2: Oh no they absolutely have their own personalities and their own uh, and their own cultures. Yeah. So, you know, Harvard was, was very, uh, you know, the, my two years in the economics department at Harvard, the faculty, there are, you know, world-class scholars, but they were kind of wrapped up in, into their own world. It was not a particularly nurturing place, Hmm. uh, for young assistant, uh, young assistant professors. Um, not a really collegial place, I, I, at least I wouldn't describe it that way. Uh, I went to the University of Chicago, not a really nurturing place for the students, but it was a very collegial place for the faculty members. There were, there was a big... Um, faculty common room and you could go down there and have lunch and there'd be 20-25 people in there having lunch any any day and i quickly knew all of the faculty even the faculty outside of my area because people would just go in there and have have lunch and you'd get to know people now they were in in a academic seminar and a presentation they were cutthroat. That was not nurturing. Uh, but in terms of, are there people in the hallway to talk to? Are they are they happy to see you? Can you make you know friends? It was a very uh, it was a you know collegial place in in that sense. Uh, then I spent three years at Wharton, and that was that was an interesting experience because I was in a I was in a business school, but I was in their business and public policy department. So it was a little public policy unit inside of this bigger business school. And I've always been interested in public policy. So uh, that was a, an interesting transition for me from being in a business school to then eventually going to the Harvard Kennedy School, which was a, a purely a, a public policy school. And Wharton was kind of intermediate in terms of the culture and then, to, then when I went to the Harvard Kennedy School, uh, I guess my way to describe the Harvard Kennedy School is it's a public policy school. So you're admitting students who who you think are going to have an impact on the world. That's why they're there. And then they're self-selecting because they want to come in and have an impact on the world. So you've mm. got this, this kind of dual selection process going on, and you get these really motivated students who are going to go out and do great things. But while they're at the Harvard Kennedy School, they're starting one classroom at a time. So oh, yeah. you have these activist students who, who who wanted everything to be perfect, uh, everything to be perfect in the in the classroom. So they all had very different very different cultures. Uh, and there were, you know, um, things I would replicate about all of them and there were things I would change about all of them.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm excited to jump into some of these uh, principles you uh, sent over to me, um, and see what we can learn there from, from your professional life and educational academic life. Uh, the first principle you, you put down is life involves making sacrifices, focus on what you've decided is most important, not what you're giving up. Expand on that.
2: So I put that principle down because I get asked a lot: How do you balance work and family? How do you make oh, yeah. it all work work out? Uh, I will note that there's a little bit of inequity in the world that that uh, uh, women get asked that question a lot, and men don't get asked <laughs> that question with the same with the same yeah, even, been asked that question a lot, I've had a lot of opportunities to to think about it, and uh, you know, I think some women in particular look at me and they say, oh, it looks like she has it all. She has a successful career. She has a family. Um, How do you do that? And the answer is, I don't have it all. I had to make choices about what mattered to me. And then, uh, you know, there were sacrifices that were made along the way. And other people make different choices that make different, you know, that involve different types of sacrifices. So when my Uh, when my kids were born, I gave up my subscription to the newspaper. I gave up my book group that I went to every month. I gave up my ladies movie club that I went to every month. There were a lot of sacrifices that were made because I decided that having uh, kids was important to me, but I really loved my job and I wasn't ready to, to give that up. And so I gave up a whole bunch of other things on the side, you know, there were periods of time where I decided that we were going to be okay if we ate bagels and cream cheese and frozen waffles for dinner, because that's all I had time to put on the table. Uh, And, and keeping my job was more important than, than spending an hour cooking dinner every night. And that was a, that was a choice I made. But it was a sacrifice. It meant that our dinners were not quite as lovely as they might have been, uh, as they might have been otherwise. Yeah. Um, and so, for me, it was helpful to, to just keep on reminding myself: this is what you decided is important to you. And instead of spending your time uh, opining about the things that you gave up, remember you made the choice that that those were the things that mattered less to you. And you're focusing on the things that matter more to you. And I don't want to argue that the things that matter most to me are the things that ought to matter most to anyone else, but I think there is a, you know, a, a valuable lesson in there that any path you choose is going to involve making some sacrifices. Yeah. And if you've chosen what you think is most important to you, and hopefully you make that choice with with God, and if you're married, with your with your spouse. If you've chosen what's mo- what's most important to you, focus on the good things that come from the things that you chose and don't spend your time uh, worrying about the stuff that you gave up for what mattered
0: more.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like the emphasis on, you know, like those, those dinners that as you do that, some areas of life, you know, as you make certain things a priority, some areas of life get a little bit messy or less ideal, like dinner time, right? Like maybe they your next door neighbors had a great meal, you know, laid out every day at five 30 and it was perfect, but that just wasn't in, in the typical for your life. Cause you've chosen a different path that brought you more blessings in or is, or different kind of blessings in, in a different area of life. Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And some, some days we did have healthy. <laughs> <meals>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: for sure. So, uh, any other, as far as, as far as sacrifice and priorities, mm-hmm. any other experiences come to mind or.
2: Uh, you know, I just feel really lucky to have had the opportunities that I've, that I've had in my life. And, uh, you know, certainly with me working and my husband working, we've both had to make professional sacrifices. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. Several years ago, someone from the U.K. called and said, hey, would you like to come over and uh, set up this new agency with the government uh, in London? And it was just like, you know, it's not going to work. I can't can't uproot my family. I always thought I would go to Washington and spend a couple of years as the economist at at one of the government agencies. And Mm -hmm. a lot of them are set up to bring someone in for two years. I've got lots of colleagues who've done that. Given my interest in public policy, I always thought that would be something that I would do. And I always told myself, well, when the kids are out of the house and they're in college, then I'll go do that. (laughs) Because it never worked. You know, it just wasn't going to work with uprooting two kids and my husband would have to find another job or we'd be doing a long distance commuting marriage and we didn't want that. Uh, and so I thought, well, it'll happen when the kids go to, go to college. And instead, here I am doing this.
1: Yeah, so you
2: right. make, you make sacrifices and focus on the, the, the good things.
1: Yeah. And it sounds like in your life, it's not like every opportunity closed to you, you know, you just different opportunities came and now you're in a great,
2: yeah. uh,
1: you know, a great opportunity to, to t- teach and lead at uh, BYU. So really great. Uh, next principle is, uh, find joy in the journey.
2: Yeah, so I think this is really important. Uh, And I discovered this when I was working at the University of Chicago. So we were living in Chicago and that's where we started having our kids. And, um, we were living in a suburb of Chicago called Oak Park and I was commuting into the University of Chicago which is a little bit south of downtown. And if there was no traffic, it was a 25 minute door-to-door commute, which was great, except that 90% of the time, the commute was awful. So it could get up to an hour (laughs) and 15 minutes. And uh, our kids were little, and my husband was the bishop, and he was a consultant, and he was working out of town four or five days a week. And it was really hard. Those were really hard years in Chicago. And for the first while, you know, I hated that commute. It was long. It was, you know, some days it was 25, some days it was 75 minutes. I never knew what to plan on. And then I discovered audiobooks. Nice. And, uh, you know, back in those days, you had to rent them and they came on cassette tapes. And then eventually they came on CDs. And then now, of course, you just download them digitally on Audible. Yeah. Uh, but that, changed my perspective on my commute because now all of a sudden I had something to look forward to. And that was a literal journey from, yeah. from home to work. But I found a way to find joy in that piece of my literal travel journey and in that piece of my life journey by getting a good audiobook. because then I'd look forward to it uh, and I'd want to get in the car so I could find out what happened next in this book i was listening to and one of the things that i gave up when we had kids was reading was reading books i just didn't have time to do it and now i had time to listen to books and this thing that was really hard to do i found a way to make it a joyful part of my day, part of my day and I, I realized that i came to that realization when i was asked to give a talk in sacrament meeting for mothers day one year uh, and I realized that I'd managed to find joy in the journey in that really difficult part of my life through through audiobooks, and that's a principle that I've kept with me. To to you know, life is not always going to be a bed of roses. There are hard things that are always happening to us. So find the thing that will bring you joy in the journey, because you know we've been told. Men are that they might have joy, not yeah. men are that they might have joy on their deathbed or in the next <laughs> life or some distant point in the future. I think Heavenly Father wants us to have joy here and now in our daily lives, regardless of our circumstances. Yeah,
1: that's great. And so do you even today, do you still have uh, time for for audio books or are you reading more? Yeah. Or-
2: so I, yeah, I've got a I've got a better commute now. I have my now my commute's a predictable thirty minutes. Nice. Uh, and sometimes I'll listen to audiobooks. Sometimes I'll listen to music. Uh, one of the other things I do that brings me joy is we've got two little white fluffy dogs, and I enjoy taking them on a walk every night and oh, yeah. I, you know fifteen or twenty minutes to myself. And uh, you know I love doing it when the when the sun is setting. Uh, and we live we live in Highland up by the mountains and. There's just yeah, this beautiful. beautiful purple glow on the mountains at sunset. And, you know, it's not really bit, you know, it's 15 minutes. It's not really long, but it's 15 minutes that bring me joy because I've decided that that's going to be a part of my day that brings me joy.
1: Yeah. I love that because I bet there are days where you're just overwhelmed back to back meetings. I mean, it's stressful, but at least at the end of the day, you're going to take those those cute fluffy dogs and and enjoy those those moments and sort of uh, reconnect. Right. and yeah. And unwind a little bit. That's awesome. All right, next principle is uh, find a good mentor. How did you go about doing that?
2: Yeah. So I've had, I've had a couple of really great mentors in my professional journey. One of them was my advisor in graduate school. He's a man named Jim Paterba and he was enthusiastic and patient and, Uh, devoted. He would always give me the time and attention I needed when I was working on my dissertation. And then after I graduated, uh, you know, when when you're in graduate school, your advisor, he kind of has to, he or she has to mentor you. That's their job. Uh, (laughs) But after I graduated, I was really lucky and he was, uh, you know, he was willing to continue helping me when i was making big decisions about whether or not to change jobs or when opportunities came up you know to chair a committee or join a board or something like that i would reach out and talk to him and he always had really good advice he was one of the few people that i was talking to when the opportunity to come to BYU first came up kind of in those early stages when it's a little bit awkward to talk about things and they're not and they're mm. not public uh, he was one of the two or three people, other than my, than my spouse, that I reached out to. Is this a good idea? What do you think? Um, so he's been a great mentor. And then uh, more recently, when I came to to BYU and I started my job two and a half years ago, uh, I decided that I need to, I needed to enlist Kim Clark to be a mentor, and he oh, yeah. was a guest on your podcast yeah. a few episodes ago. And Kim and I had lived in the same ward when I was in graduate school, but I didn't know him super well. Uh, And in fact, uh, I talked to him about this a few weeks ago. And I, I said, do you ever remember having a conversation, you and I having a conversation during those six years when... Uh, when we were in the same ward in Belmont, Massachusetts, and neither one of us could remember actually having a conversation, uh, <laughs> so I, you know I can remember him talking in church and seeing him in the building. And my husband had his twin daughters in in his primary class, so there were plenty of connections, but we never actually had a conversation. Uh, but when I started this job, I thought, well, I, I really you know, there are probably some things that he could teach me. He was the dean of a business school for t- ten years at Harvard and then he left Harvard to come to a CES school. and so there were some some parallels. And I just reached out to him and uh, and I asked I, I said, look, I feel like there's some things I could learn from you. Uh, could we talk every once in a while? And he said, yeah. Hmm. Uh, and so we started out, you know, talking about once a quarter. And then after about a year, I hired him. He's on my faculty now. Uh, so <laughs> nice. Now that he's on my payroll.
1: <laughs> That's right. I can't escape you, right?
2: <laughs> he, feels, he feels like he has to talk to me more often. I, can't turn <laughs> me down. I, I reach out to him all the time. And, and he's been a really fantastic and fabulous mentor. But, but I've learned, I think, a few things from... Kind of my relationships with people who've who've mentored me, but also from the relationships I've had with other people who've reached out to me to be their mentor. So I think the first piece of advice would be, is it's always helpful to have a good good mentor. Ask someone when yeah. you identify someone, ask them if they will mentor you. And I learned about that from a, a young assistant professor at Harvard who asked me to be her mentor. And what it did is it changed the way that I thought about my relationship with her. Mm -hmm. So once she asked me formally, will you be my mentor? Then I didn't feel, uh, I felt like I had more license to reach out to her when I would think of things, oh, this might, you know, this might benefit so-and-so. Or, you know, if a conference invitation came up in my inbox that I thought, oh, this would be really good for her. Uh, I would just, I would just send it to her without even thinking about it because she'd reached out to me and said, will you help me? And if she hadn't done that, I'm not sure that I would have been as proactive in the same way. So, uh, you know, identify someone and then actually, actually ask them. Uh, and then I guess the second piece of advice I would give is, you know, take that kind of a relationship seriously. And when you have a, have a meeting, come Come prepared, you know, come with a list of questions or a list of issues that you're, that you're dealing with uh, and make the, make the most of it. I've, I've found that when I'm proactive, I get a lot more out of the relationship, but I think, it, I think that's actually true on the other side, Yeah, uh, on the other side as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great advice because I, I would imagine sometimes, you know, especially as students, you're maybe around certain professors a lot, you're in their classes, whatever. And, and so naturally you sort of think, yeah, they're my mentor, but you almost have to formalize it with that, that request or invitation. Uh, and then it really shifts the dynamic of that relationship because they, they not, they now have put themselves in the context, oh, I'm their mentor. I can, you know, this is, I, I can follow up with some questions or give them more advice than maybe they uh, I would have assumed beforehand. So I love that, just that step of formalizing it so that, that the expectation is there and everybody's on the same page, right? Yeah. Awesome. Um, solicit feedback this is sort of in the same vein as uh, uh, having a mentor. So h- how do you go about soliciting feedback?
2: Yeah, so the interesting thing about about being in an academic career is that you get a lot of feedback, which is completely unsolicited. So (laughs) you teach class, and at the end of every semester, you get student evaluations. Mm, You get more feedback than you want from your students sometimes. You're trying to publish papers, so those get sent out for peer review, and you get tons and tons of feedback and let me just say that peer reviewers are not nice most of the time. <laughs> yeah. So you get really good at 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 getting feedback and and figuring out what to what to do with it, you know, so you get your course evaluations and then you figure out what to change in your course, you get the the reviews of your academic papers and you figure out what to change in your paper. And you know, initially you know, some of that feedback, like I said, some of it is not nice, uh, or at least it's not delivered in a, in a nice way. And it can feel really harsh and you can feel really defensive. Like hmm. you try and come up with justifications, why this comment is, uh, is wrong, totally off base, things like that. But what I, what I came to realize is that feedback is really a blessing. Uh, if you're not getting feedback, Feedback, you're not getting input put on what you can do differently. And if you're not open to feedback, if you're not open to the feedback that you're getting, you're not gonna and you're not gonna improve as as much. Uh, now, when I started this job two and a half years ago, those feedback, I'm not teaching classes anymore, so I'm not getting that type of feedback, and I'm uh, you know not as engaged in in research. And there aren't really good formal mechanisms for getting feedback in my job as a as a dean. So a few months ago, uh, uh, I engaged in a process of soliciting feedback uh, from my boss and 15 of the people that I work with. Some of them are peers. Some of them are people who report to me, and this was done through a, a Coach that I'm working with, uh, so there was a formal instrument for collecting feedback and a formal process mm-hmm. for collecting it and delivering it. And I got a 92-page report <laughs> on me. Wow! <laughs> wow! Uh, but it came. It came really interestingly. It came the week before Easter, mm-hmm. and I thought that was a really, really interesting timing. Uh, probably a really good thing because I was in the mode of thinking about Easter and r- repentance and all of that, and I get this 92-page report with feedback. And some of it's good. As a matter of fact, a lot of it was good, but a lot of it was here are things that you need to uh, here are things that you need to work on. And you know, initially I read the here are the things you need to work on. I got a little bit defensive. Uh, you know what? What do they mean? I'm interrupting in meetings. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> how dare they?
2: <laughs> how dare they accuse me of doing that? <laughs> uh, but I quickly realized that, yeah, you know what? There are things that I need to work on, uh, and that all of these people who would taken the time to give me feedback—they were doing it to help me because they wanted me to be better. Because we all had a vested interest in, yeah. in my learning how to do my job. Uh, my learning how to do my job better. And, and once I realized that it was coming out of a place of love, it was actually a lot easier to, to kind of take that all in and say, okay, yep, here are the things I'm doing okay with. Uh, And that's good feedback to have. Here are the things that you're doing well, but here are the things that you need to work on. Um, And, you know, I'm a task oriented person. So once I kind of put put it in that mindset. Here are the things you need to work on. Now I can think about them that way. Uh, these are just, this is just another part of my job. These are things I need to accomplish. Um, in addition to the meetings I need to attend, these are the things I need to do and work on to be a more effective leader.
1: Yeah. And, And I love that, that, uh, uh, concept of that, you know, sometimes we're in certain professions or as a student, maybe feedback just comes, <laughs> whether you ask it or not, like just part of the the system and the way it works as a professor, right? Uh, but then you move on to other responsibilities and sometimes you have to be proactive in seeking out that feedback. And you can't forget that step because that feedback can be so helpful and enriching and help you become more self-aware of uh, how you're doing, right?
2: And the, the other thing I've learned is that, you know, once I started soliciting feedback, and then people realized i actually wanted it oh yeah now people will come up and and give me feedback knowing that i'm not going to uh, push them away or be be defensive you know yeah. they'll, they'll come up and say hey you said you wanted feedback you know that comment you made to so and so in that meeting you maybe could have said that in a slightly different way that would have been more productive yeah and it's changed the dynamic of my relationship with with those you know with some of the people that I that I work with yeah. in a really I think in a really positive and 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 productive way.
1: Right. Next principle I think is a great follow up to uh when you receive ba- feedback you got to be grateful. So uh express gratitude. How do you go about expressing gratitude?
2: Yeah, so this is something that I had really not thought about a lot in a professional context uh until I don't know maybe a decade ago when I was reading an academic study that was published by some of my colleagues at Harvard. And they had studied an intervention with employees that worked in the development office of a large university. Hmm. And they segmented those employees into two different groups. And one group had their manager come in and just give them a simple expression of gratitude. I'm so grateful for the important important work you're doing to contribute to the mission of the university. And then they tracked the productivity of the employees who were given that expression of gratitude and the employees who weren't. And the productivity in the development office is how many fundraising phone calls do you make over the next week? Uh, and they found that the productivity of the employees who were told "thank you" went up by fifty percent, five zero percent. It was a huge effect, and there was no compensation involved, right? This wasn't like we yeah. were paying people to make more phone calls. They were just more motivated because they felt like what they were doing mattered. And when I saw that study, I thought, well, that's a really easy, simple thing to do. And if the you know, if the effects on productivity are that strong, uh, boy, I probably ought to be doing. I probably ought to be doing more of this. Um, so when I when I started my job here at BYU, I decided that I wanted to be a grateful. I wanted to be a grateful person, and I certainly don't have it down perfectly, but I've tried to be very proactive in telling people. Thank you. When they, when they do a good job or when they've been helpful. Uh, when, you know, when pay raises come out, I don't, I, I, I don't just send a letter saying here's your pay raise. I put a try and put a personal note on there. Thank you for being part of our, you know, BYU Marriott team. And uh, what I've discovered is that as I do that, uh, I, I, Everyone always writes back, so I'm an I'm an emailer. (laughs) Uh Uh, But people always respond, Uh, you know. And I had one employee. uh, I sent her an email telling her thank you for something, and she wrote back and she said, "I've been working here for 20 years, and I've never had an email from the dean in my entire life." Oh wow! Uh, And what I discover is, you tell someone thank you, and they. Right back, and they tell you thank you for saying thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so when I feel like I'm not getting enough validation, I've learned I if I just tell someone else thank you, I will immediately get whatever validation I think I, I think I'm going to need. And I think it just makes it a happier, happier place to work when you have a culture where people are expressing gratitude.
1: Yeah. And, and I love just with some of those examples, this isn't a, uh, you know, you're not going out buying huge fruit baskets for people and trying to figure out how to deliver. Them. Like, it's just these simple gestures of gratitude, maybe a short note or an email here and there. And, yeah. and that's really all it takes, right?
2: Yeah. And, but for really for heroic efforts, I do send fruit (laughs) baskets and flowers.
1: Oh, nice. Nice. So keep, (laughs) keep them on speed dial for sure. That's great. All right. Let's, uh, last principle you you noted here is a great one. I think we could all apply it and that is uh, pray often. How do you uh, employ prayer in your, in your life?
2: Yeah. So I, I, I probably have not prayed as often as I should have, (laughs) Uh, But when I've thought about the role of prayer in my professional career, the most important things that have happened to me professionally, all have strong connections with prayer in my life, and not with a single prayer, but with prolonged periods of prayer. So when I was in graduate school... And I was trying to figure out what to write my dissertation on. That's the biggest question for a graduate student. What are you going to write your dissertation on? Because that's going to determine what type of a job you get when you're done. And I was having a hard time coming up with a topic and, you know, I'd brainstorm and come up with lists and talk to people and then I'd throw them away. And uh, I was getting to the point where I kind of needed to come up with an idea or I was going to have to stay another year in graduate school. And I was doing a lot of praying you know, to come up with a topic for my dissertation. And, uh, and one day I was going on a walk with uh, another colleague of mine, and we were having a conversation and it just hit me. This is what you need to write your dissertation on. And it wasn't just the idea that hit me, I went home and I outlined the whole thing. Uh, oh, wow. I, knew, I knew exactly what it was going to look like. I knew what kind of data I needed. I knew what kind of analysis I was going to do. And then it was just a matter of ex- execution. Uh, and, you know, it was a good enough dissertation that I ended up getting getting a job at, at Harvard. Uh, but it was also good enough dissertation that it ended up influencing public policy. So some of the findings in there ended up influencing uh, part of the health insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996. So that was kind of exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, And a few years later, my husband was the bishop when we were in Chicago, and we had two small kids, and life was hard. I've already talked about that. And I was kind of getting bored with what I'd been working on for the past three or four years, and and kind of felt like I needed to breathe some new energy into my research program, or there really wasn't much point in my being at the University of Chicago. And I was having a hard time coming up with, well, what's the next, what's the next act? What's the next set of stuff I'm going to work on? And I, you know, at that time I spent months praying, okay, you want us here in Chicago? My husband's the bishop. Uh, if I can't find something good to work on, then uh, we might as well not be here in Chicago. And then David's not going to be the bishop. So Heavenly Father, if you want David to be the bishop, <laughs> 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 I need some help. Um and, and it, you know, didn't come overnight. I pray, I prayed for months about this, but I, I uh, was at a meeting one day um, at, at a company outside of Chicago and I was, I was at the meeting and the, you know, the meeting had a purpose and one of the employees there came up to me during one of the breaks and she said, well, I know this isn't why you're here. And it wasn't. But we have a company that that is interested in having someone do this type of analysis of their retirement savings plan. Are you interested? And I happen to know enough about the existing literature on retirement savings to know that the data that they that they had that they wanted someone to look at was going to make a contribution, hmm. even though I hadn't worked in that area. Wow! And so I said, I said, yeah, sure, I'd be happy to do that. And they and they. They sent me the data and then offhand they said, Oh, by the way, the company did XYZ. I don't know if that's important or not. And as soon as they said that, I realized that is really important um, and ended up writing this paper pretty quickly. Uh, it's ended up being uh, my m- most cited paper. It's had a huge impact on retirement savings plans in the US, in the UK, and other countries. It's probably helped. You know, millions of people, uh, tens of millions, uh, save more for retirement. Um, You know, and that was that was the result. It wasn't you know, I wasn't planning to write this paper. It was a literal answer to uh, to a prayer. And then, uh, you know, the experience deciding to leave Harvard and come to BYU was one that involved uh, months of prayer on my part. Uh, and also uh, prayers on the part of a lot of other people at well, as well. At, at one point when I uh, was coming out here, I was one of the finalists to to be the dean, and I had to come out for a couple of days and do interviews and had to do a presentation to all the faculty and the, and the staff and Q&A and things like that. And uh, I ended up missing my plane from Boston. So I had a little oh, wow. I had wait for a couple of hours to take the next plane. And I sat there and I thought, you know, uh, there are a lot of women I know who would be interested that I'm doing this. And I hadn't told anyone, but I sent an email out to three or four dozen of my uh, female friends. And I said, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm interviewing for this job. I don't know whether I, whether or not I want it, but would you just pray for me? And, uh, the next day when I was out there standing on the stage in front of all the faculty and the staff, I could feel very palpably the prayers of these women who, who wow. I had enlisted in my behalf. And it was really powerful, uh, a really powerful and meaningful experience. So, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've come to appreciate the power of prayer, um, really in my in my professional life not just in my personal life but in my professional life in leading to to good outcomes and sometimes I've looked back and said gee I wonder what it would have been like if I had prayed even more
1: yeah yeah. And I love that story, that like not only like the importance of you praying and, and seeking guidance personally, but to reach out to those that support and love you and say, "Will you pray for me. I'm about to do something that's very difficult or, you know, and the MBA students are facing that day to day a lot of the time, you know, and so requesting others to pray can be such a powerful exercise and, and so unifying to those that you love. Yeah. Right? yeah. And um, in the context of prayer, like, I mean, at BYU, we all know, I mean, revelation is just dripping from the ceiling. I mean, it's uh, BYU, right? So, <laughs> But I love, you know, in your story, just or in your personal experiences that, you know, it's this sort of this prayer is sort of this wrestle with with God as you're you're mulling things over. And so, I, and I would imagine even even at BYU, right? There's still that, that wrestle as you're making decisions and considering different things. Uh, anything come to mind as far as prayer in the context of your time at BYU?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, a whole bunch of things. Uh, I used to joke when I first got here that I was afraid I was going to get in trouble for forgetting to start a meeting with prayer because that (laughs) was, you know, it's been 30 years at other institutions where that was not part of, uh, you know, part of the way business was done. Uh, I had a really powerful experience uh, very, very early on. So I started my job in January of 2019, but we actually moved out here around uh, Thanksgiving before then and even though i hadn't started uh i was coming to campus a couple of days a week to kind of get my bearings and so uh right after the thanksgiving break i was on campus uh not in my job yet but on campus as the dean to be and we had a student who jumped from the fourth floor balcony mm-hmm. of the atrium in the tanner building and ended up uh, dying as a result of that fall you know shocking event shocking event and a meeting was called that afternoon in the big boardroom next to the dean's office and the academic vice president came over and the deans from the college were there and people from the counseling office on campus all came together and the purpose was of the, of the meeting was to discuss okay what are the next what are the next steps. And we sat down in that meeting and the meeting started with a prayer. And I thought, wow, if this had happened at Harvard, there would have been a similar meeting, but the meeting would not have started with a prayer. Hmm. And in that meeting, we were able to call on the powers of heaven to help us with this really difficult situation that was hard. The, this, the fall was witnessed by students and faculty and staff. and. Um, and we had the help of heaven in figuring out what what to do, uh, you know, what to do next. So that that was one really, yeah. uh, I think, really concrete and specific example that happened early on. You know, I've had I've had in my role I've had to have some difficult conversations with people, and I have learned do not have a difficult conversation unless you have done a lot of time praying yeah. about how to have that conversation and how to have it in a way uh where love is involved even though there might be some hard news that's delivered um and sometimes you gotta you know sometimes it involves weeks of prayer getting ready for something like that uh but it makes a huge difference
1: yeah yeah powerful story so helpful and inspiring um as we, before we wrap up here, I, I want to hit on a few uh, topics as far as, uh, you know, women in business, uh, what encouragement would you give to maybe some women out there who are considering, you know, going through, uh, the, the education with business and through business schools and things like that, uh, to, so that maybe we have more opportunities for women in, in business, any, any encouragement or advice there?
2: I think I would say that my, you know, my aspirations for the Marriott School here at BYU is to make this a place where everyone feels like they're valued, encouraged, and supported in achieving their academic uh, and professional goals. And if you're a woman who's interested in studying business, I want you to feel welcome. Does that mean that I want every woman to come study business? No. If you (laughs) want to go study something else, that's fine. That's fine, too. But I don't want you to feel like you shouldn't be studying business because you're not going to be welcome here, or because someone else thinks that you shouldn't do that. I think a business education provides a lot of really practical skills that you can use in an employment setting, but you can also use them in, you know, in running your, uh, running your your personal life. You know, one of your earlier guests on this podcast was was Corinne Clark, and she talks yeah. about how her MBA helped her. Uh, you know, manage her cancer diagnosis several years ago. That she took all of the skills that she learned from her business education and put them into practice, into you know fighting this, uh, fighting and overcoming this disease. Uh, so this the the skills you're going to learn are going to be helpful in in lots of ways. And, uh, you know, there are lots of great opportunities for women in business. I think there are more opportunities today than there have ever been. The workplace is, I think, more flexible. It's more, uh, you know, it's more open. Um, So if you want to major in business, you want to get an MBA, uh, go for it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I love just going back to your first principle that just recognizing that maybe life will look a little bit different or there's going to be some sacrifice here and there. But if we keep remembering, you know, you know, the, the blessings and, and, and the life you're pursuing and not necessarily what you're giving up, it can be a a wonderful, wonderful life, I would imagine. So, um, what about just, uh, you know, BYU, obviously, a church institution, um, a lot of Latter-day Saints, you know, go there, especially for their undergrad. And, and when someone's uh, considering MBA school, it's natural to think, well, BYU should be on my list. I mean, for many reasons that you have a spiritual environment, your classes will start with prayer, right? And uh, and also financially, maybe it's uh, easier to, to pay for than other, you know, more competitive institutions, whatever it is. Um, what advice would you give to maybe um, I- individuals considering MBA school as their Uh, considering different institutions?
2: I would give two pieces of advice. The first is you want a school that is a good fit for what your interests and strengths are. Hmm. And, you know, different schools have different strengths. BYU has a certain set of strengths. Uh, You know, one strength is we've got a a relatively low tuition. We've got, uh, you know, a, a, a couple of great tracks. Our human resource management track is number one in the country. Uh, You get smaller, you get smaller class sizes, you have the faith based element of the of the curriculum. Um, And there are other programs that have other other strengths. And I've taught in some of those other programs. Uh, And so I think it's about it's about finding what's a good fit for your strengths and for your interests. But ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, it's you know where does God want you to be, and does He want you to study at BYU or does He want you to study someplace else? So for your listeners who are interested in studying at BYU, we're we're happy to have you. We're, yeah. We would love to welcome you if this is where you and God decide you should be. But uh, I'm not so presumptuous to say that this is where everyone should be. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I've certainly had lots of wonder- wonderful experiences at at other at other institutions as well. I'm grateful to be where I am now, but I'm also grateful for the experiences that I had at MIT and at Harvard and at Chicago and at Wharton.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Well, Bridget, this has been so fantastic. Any, uh, before I ask maybe one last question, any principle or concept that uh, we didn't hit on that uh, you want to make sure we cover before we wrap up?
2: No, I think we got to everything on my list.
1: Oh, cool. Awesome. Awesome. Well, um, the last question I have for you is: Imagine you're in front of a room full of MBA students or alumni, and uh, what final encouragement would you give to that group?
2: I would tell that group that you have the potential to change the world through your leadership, and your ability to do that comes both through your training uh, as a as an MBA through your MBA program but more importantly, through your gospel training and your spiritual education. And don't compartmentalize your life. Don't lead your MBA life Monday through Friday or Monday through Saturday and your spiritual life on Sunday. Bring the best of the gospel and the Holy Ghost to your to your job Monday through, through Saturday and bring the best of your MBA education with you to church on Sunday.
0: Thank you for listening to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guests and visit latterdaysaintmba.com to find details about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society.